Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Okay, welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I am joined by two special guests. One is Dr. Michael Jacobs. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in LaGrange, Georgia. And the other is Bob Spiel. He is an oral maxillofacial surgery and dental consultant. Thank you guys for joining us this morning. Thank you. You bet. Happy to. Yes. I was wondering if we could just start by kind of getting a brief history, maybe Michael from you of your training and the current practice setup, and then maybe Bob can kind of explain what you do for work. Sure. So I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon currently practicing in LaGrange, Georgia. It's a smaller town, about an hour, hour and a half south of Atlanta. My training started at the University of Michigan, where I went to undergraduate and dental school. And then my residency was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville for four years. I did a year in between there. I did an internship in oral surgery kind of after dental school at, at the time it was Shands Jacksonville Hospital in Jacksonville, Florida. And I practiced after residency for about 12 years in St. Louis, Missouri at a level one trauma center, which actually had a fellowship program. So that was kind of cool. I did a lot of bigger cases in a bigger hospital, but decided I want to be closer to family. So I moved to Georgia and that was about three years ago. I was an associate here for a year or two and then actually purchased the practice I'm in a year ago, March of 2020. And it's been a pretty wild ride since then. But it's I think the best thing I ever did is buy my own practice and kind of hang my own shingle. So I'm proud of the practice we're building right now. That's awesome. Bob, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you do and how you help people like us? You bet. Love to. Yeah, Michael didn't mention that he bought the practice the week before COVID hit. So right. that was, you know, kind of like being at the very top of a roller coaster. Yeah. And you don't know it. It reminds me of, you know, at, at Disneyland, they get this thing called Splash Mountain at the very yep. top. It says, can we talk about this just as you're about to go down <laughs> and get totally soaked and, you know, have a pretty crazy ride. But that was kind of Michael's story was he was right there, you know, and then all of a sudden, man, we're in it. Wow. And, you know, so I guess to give a, a quick example of what I love to do with thorough surgeons is exactly what I did with Michael. After we, well, first thing was to help calm the nerves and let them know that, you know, we're going to get through this yeah, and show financially how that can happen. I grant my background is that I was a hospital and surgical center CEO before I got into consulting. Okay. Okay. And specifically just got into to dentistry, just kind of by accident and oral surgery by accident, but love oral surgery because it's this perfect blend of dentistry and medicine combined. 
you know? Yes. So as soon as we could travel, I got to Michael's place in May of 2020 and we began to work on systems and scheduling and communication. Okay. Cause those really were the three things that just needed to be locked down. And the practice that he bought had been a legacy practice. Michael, it was how old when you acquired it? How many years had your owner before then had it? And then the owners he bought it from had it for like two or three years. Yeah. The practice started in 1978. Wow. In this this smaller town. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it had some pretty well locked in ways of doing things. And the beautiful thing was that Michael was open to suggestion and his team was open to seeing new ways of of doing what they've been doing for some for the past 20 years. Okay. And one of the cool things, Grant, that I love to do when I work with clients is not tell, but to show and also to help them discover how change could actually be on their side. Got it. Okay. You know, so one of the things that we did with Michael's team was play one of my favorite games and I play games with my clients, which I know sounds kind of oddball, but actually I found that adults learn really well on their feet and it gives them the context to be able to kind of reframe where they are and what they're being taught and where they could go. So after having a really positive day and a half interviewing his team and seeing what's going on, we had a, a great team meeting and kind of reset the whole stage for how we're going to schedule, how we're going to bring people in and how Michael was going to start to lead. Okay. And the cool thing was by, man, by the summer, he was doing the same amount of work as a solo doc as two docs were doing the year before with less stress. And I think with a lot more enjoyment. That's awesome. And and what are some of the keys to that transformation and kind of getting to that point? Were there any things that stood out in your mind as, oh, here's some changes that really made that happen? You bet. Michael, I'm wanting to see what you remember from a little over a year ago. You know, yeah, what were the changes so that we much. locked in first? There's so much. I mean, it was a good practice when I started, but like Bob said, there was a lot of kind of institutional I don't know if it's inertia is the word, but it was, it was so like ingrained in the way it was. And maybe some of the other doctors had a little different philosophy on the way they practiced than I did. And I think maybe one, you know, some of the front desk was just really stressed out and I probably could have dealt with that myself, but I feel like it would have taken years to overcome some of the, you know, minor issues in the practice and some of the staffing issues. Some of the biggest things were scheduling just getting the schedule worked out properly. We went through and defined everybody's roles in our practice. Like I didn't have a great understanding of what was going on up front. Like I think a lot of oral surgeons, you know, we put our head down and work really hard in the back of the office and like, what exactly is, you know, this person doing up front? And I think we went through and defined everybody's roles. So I understand exactly what they're doing. And then we presented those roles to the people up front and kind of discussed their role. Said, here's what you're supposed to do. We actually put metrics on their role to say, hey, you know, if you're doing your job well, you know, this is the outcome we're going to see so that we can, you know, maybe every four to six months kind of sit down and meet with them and say, here's what you're doing here. You know, we're meeting our goals. So everybody kind of knows what they're doing. And I think if you define what, what people are doing, they do better. I mean, they take ownership of their own position that way. So 
those are just some of the some of the things. There's literally a list of you know probably fifty different things. When Bob sat down, he said, "Here's a list of things we need to accomplish," and we chipped away at it over you know a year's time, and we're getting to the point where the practice is just running itself, and it's not stressful. The key for me is I asked Bob to come in, and I didn't you know. I don't have a lot of business background. Like I said, I probably could have corrected a lot of the issues that were going on, but it would have taken years and probably hours of time on the end of the day. I would have had to work from five to seven in the evening to figure some things out like every day. And I have two little kids and I just didn't want to spend that time, you know, after work doing that. So he was instrumental in changing a lot of these things. He could probably talk about some of the other things we worked on as well. Grant, I think one of the, the biggest things that happened early on was we totally reformatted how Michael saw patients. Okay. Okay. And let me just give you a little bit of background because about 50% of my clients are GPs and 50% are specialists. Okay. And with a medical background, it kind of lends itself to see opportunities that I think the typical consultant isn't going to grab. Mm-hmm. The first time I worked with an oral surgery practice was a fairly large practice up in Salt Lake City that was running as fast as they could. And their team was totally getting burnt out. When I arrived on site and I met them through giving a presentation on leadership in Atlanta, Georgia at a CareStream event. And the office manager had eyes this big, like, you know, man, I need help today because half my people are more ready to quit. Yeah. We love our doctor, but he's burning us out. I was blown away with what I saw because when I said, okay, show me your schedule. And literally their schedule was one long column while the guy had six rooms. And I like, I was going, well, why on earth are you doing this? And it was, well, that's how it's always been. So we took their schedule and divided it by room. But then the next thing was they were operating an oral surgery practice like a GP does. So that you would have a surgery and then you'd have a consult and then you'd have a follow-up and then you'd have another follow-up, then you'd have a consult, then you'd have a surgery. And all day long, you're starting and stopping and starting and stopping, just like a GP practice does between new patients, hygiene, and restorative. Yeah. You know, the beautiful thing in an oral surgery practice is you don't have to play that game. And once you realize you can let go of that game and instead of do what I call this start-stop schedule all day long. Instead, block your schedule off by like procedures. Mm -hmm. So with Michael, we said, okay, morning is surgeries. Afternoon is going to be post-ops and new patients. And then from there, we get to a point of, all right, instead of the surgeon owning 80% of every one of those visits, how can we train the assistants at a level and also educate the front desk so well so that they can triage properly? And also, by the way, know with emergencies, which of our referring providers we're going to bring right in and which we're going to push off a little bit. But with those things in place, man, his schedule just smoothed over and, you know, they were having lunch, they were starting on time, they were ending on time and everything just started to click. Nice. The other thing I think involving the schedule too was having my assistants and I actually have a nurse in my office kind of take ownership of a lot of the consultations. So I think for me, some of the stress was the consultations and get, you know, you get sucked into a room with patients sometimes that just want to talk or, you know, things take a little longer and then your whole schedule gets behind. You know, we kind of 
Bob kind of talked to us and I've worked with my staff and I have a great back office staff, two great assistants and a great nurse right now that go into the consult room, almost, I don't say do the consult for me, but they've got all the key information, you know, and then when they come out of the room, we've worked on our handoffs where they tell me, you know, you know, 30 year old female wisdom teeth, here's what she does for a living. Here's, you know, the key information in her medical history. And it's like, that takes 10 seconds. And I go in and I already know what's going on. I said, I look in there, it's like, boom, we're done. So 80% of the consult time is with my staff and probably 20% is with mine. And it's not that I'm shortchanging patients on time and it's not, you know, completely a monetary transaction or anything like that, but the care is excellent. So my girls are well-trained now and they go and kind of do the consult and come out and talk to me about it. So that was key too. They actually take care of most of the note and I just kind of look through it at the end and kind of hit the button. The other thing we did is Bob helped me transition to electronic practice. So that was a big difference for, you know, kind of saving time and being more efficient mm-hmm. with our time. Yeah, that was something, something that happened over the last year as well. And yeah, so that, that's another big thing. So the consults just moved a lot smoother than normal. So a couple of questions, you know, one is why set up a schedule by like procedures? Like how does doing all surgeries at one time and then whatever post-ops or consults, how does that make things smoother for you? For me, it's huge. And I didn't even realize it, but doing all surgeries in the morning, I mean, the staff kind of gets in the groove. You put, you know, four or six IVs next to each other and they just kind of get in this rhythm of doing, you know, they put them to sleep, they wake them up. I walk into the room, I do the procedure. I walk in the next room, I do the procedure. Like we're in this nice flow. Yeah. What I had been doing in other practices is doing surgery consult follow-up, surgery consult follow-up. I'd done that where I was in Missouri for a while. And looking back at that is just ridiculously inefficient. And it's more the staff, like we can jump from room to room and do different things and it might even be better, but for them, they're kind of like scrambling around. They're putting patients to sleep and they're going to find patients in the waiting room, bringing them back, talking to them, you know, cleaning instruments. It's just kind of messes them up, I think, more than anything. But if you put the surgeries together and you do the consults together, they get in the flow in the afternoon of just bringing patients back, talking to them, coming to me. I mean, you kind of get this nice flow. It's super efficient. It just works really well. We also put all our local anesthetics together on a Mm -hmm. certain day. And I've actually kind of tried to get away more from doing local anesthetics because we, you know, and looking at the practice just decided that for me, they're not super fun and they're not super efficient. So if I can encourage somebody to go to sleep, we will. That's something I maybe didn't do before. And at Bob's request, we're trying to do that a little more, but we do, when we do locals, we put them together and it's a nice little grouping of, you know, four or six local anesthetics on one day. And we just kind of go from room to room and do locals. So it's just for efficiency and it's really for the staff. They're so much happier in the back when they can come in and know what they're doing and just do it. Yep. And it's all the same stuff. So so Grant, really what it does, it allows an oral surgery practice to kind of shift into a surgical center mode. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was part of my background before getting consulting. I was also surgical center CEO. And so they can get into this hyper-efficient type mode where everything just flows and that in the staff allows it to happen. I mean, I, I liken the previous schedule of, you know, consult surgery, follow-up and wherever it flows, kind of like driving through LA during rush hour. And it's exhausting. You get someplace, but it's super exhausting because you can never get into that zone yeah. where it's a wholly different thing. If you're driving through Montana 
at 90 miles an hour. Okay. Yeah. And it's enjoyable and you're getting someplace and you can just feel the flow. That's what happens in this type of environment. And we actually also establish typically an assistant who's what we call a flow manager, who's an air traffic controller. Okay. And this ATC really is the one who is overseeing exactly what's taking place, what needs to start, which IVs need to go, who's in post-op, et cetera. And that also can happen during the afternoon too with consults. But typically an oral surgery practice reminds me of the story I heard from a friend by the name of Linda Miles years ago about most practices remind me of the little red wagon that I had as a boy. And, you know, I used to carry stuff around the neighborhood with it, but instead in a practice, a little red wagon is your business and your team is inside it. Yeah. And the doctor just gets exhausted pulling this little red wagon everywhere it's supposed to go. Okay. Because the doctor typically would own 80% of every patient encounter. You can flip that to an 80-20 rule where the team has 80%. They're trained well. They know what to do. The expectations are clear and your systems are very well choreographed. Then the little red wagon is no longer the team is in the wagon. It's now the doctors in the wagon and the teams around it and he or she is steering. Nice. And it's yeah. no longer exhaust. It's no longer exhausting, you know. And that's one of the coolest things about oral surgery is you literally can learn how to do more in less time with less stress, with the right type of training and the right type of schedule. Yeah, that's a great point. I really like how you're talking. I mean, it sounds like you're talking about maximizing what assistants and front desk staff people can do. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, most of us naturally in dentistry are type A people who like controlling things. And so certainly I've seen and talked to many doctors who, you know, is it's more like them doing 90% of the work and the staff doing 10%. Mm-hmm. And I've always been of the mindset of, you know, we're paying these people, so let's make them do as much as possible. <laughs> But it's easier said than done when you're talking about knowing how to train them and getting them to do the right thing. And especially when you got, you know, 10 plus employees and half of them, you don't even, you know, you don't know what they're doing and where they're at and what they're saying to patients. How do you guys best train your staff? Because I think that's something we all struggle with. I think the the key thing that Bob helped me with, again, we did a thing called roles and goals where... I literally sat with him. I mean, hours and it took a while, but it's so worth it just to look at what each person does, write exactly what their role is in the office, and then develop some goals for what their position. You know, if they're doing it well, how is it done? And then you can actually put metrics on it. For example, you know, our scheduler, you know, if she's doing her job well, Maybe there's an acceptance rate, you know, of appointment acceptance when she's on the phone, like 90%, 95%. You know, there's some other things you can put on, like our billers, you know, if they if they're doing their job well, you know, there's an acceptance rate on the claims of whatever percent we have. If our purchasing person I've got, you know, business purchasing is X percent of, you know, our collections. And if they're doing their job well, everything's you know, falls in line. You guys put numbers on. So when I sit down and talk to them, I just did this like one-on-one meetings with everybody. 
it only took, you know, 15, 20 minutes each person. We just looked at their roles. We said, you know, you're doing this well, this well, everything you're doing well, you're meeting these goals. It's like all these percentages fall in line. You know, I appreciate what you're doing. You're doing a great job. And it just makes it, it just put everything for us. It's great. Like as a surgeon, you want definition to everything, right? Like you don't like gray area. You don't like, you know, is this person doing a good job? You know, it's like, it's hard to tell. Like with this defining their roles and having metrics put on their roles is like you sit down and you're like, okay, you're meeting all these things. And it's just the, it's more of a surgical approach to something that is kind of nebulous in nature, no, you know, with no pun intended. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's huge. And so it's not like, that's part of the training. I think is like, you say, this is what you're supposed to do, you know, and you kind of agree. I sat when we started, I presented these roles to everybody and said, you know, here's what we've kind of developed as your position. You know, do you agree or disagree with that? And they, you know, they have input too, so that they take ownership of their position. They know what they're supposed to do. They're in the meeting saying, you know, this is your role. And, you know, they might say, Hey, you know, I don't really do that. Or I do this a little differently. And then we switch that. And that's the template for success on their position. So that was huge for me because I wouldn't probably, I mean, I could have maybe thought of doing that, but I don't think I would have done it that way. And I certainly, golly, it would have taken me hours and days. Like I said, I'd have been, you know, sacrificing family time to do all that stuff for years to come up with that stuff. So that's been huge for practice like mine. I feel like it, it helps people take ownership of their job too, where, you know, they take pride in what they're doing because they help develop their role. And, you know, we meet and they say, you know, now I'm doing this, I'm doing this on top of what I, and so I add that to their role. And, I find that they're actually going above and beyond more than more than anything. And nice. Grant, one one thing that I found is that when you restructure your schedule, you actually end up with more time. Okay. And you've got the time to actually be able to sit down and have staff meetings and have training sessions. Okay. Part of the reason why type A personalities are trying to control everything is because you've never really defined or understood, like Michael said, I didn't know what the front was doing. So therefore your gut reaction is, okay, I have to control it. And it's, there's another way of doing it. It's this idea of letting go of control without losing control. Okay. You know, if I actually had a chance to write a book on small business leadership that targets dentistry in particular called flip your focus. You can get it on Amazon, but it specifically talks about this mindset shift that can take place as a leader, where you go from everybody's there to see that you succeed to this idea that you're there to see that they succeed. Got it. And you do that by clarifying the expectations and creating a culture of accountability by then creating a culture of ownership and participation. And then finally, by showing really targeted appreciation to your team. And if you can just accept that mindset, because the reality is that mindset then allows your team to begin to blossom and you get off the hamster wheel, you know, you just get off the hamster wheel and and things just become so much easier. The success that I've seen for practice owners that adopt that mindset and adopt those three practices is that, you know, they grow, some even grow exponentially but it's easier. They're no longer pulling the wagon. Yeah, exactly. You know, I really, I like the idea of setting up metrics and 
having specific goals. And then I like the idea of actually meeting consistently with people and, you know, reviewing all that. And then you're kind of alluding to the fact that there's a way that you reward them. How do you do that? Or how do you incentivize people for hitting their metrics or reaching their goals? Very good. So Bob helped me put in a bonus system, which we actually take collections and productions at the end of the month and average them out. And we're completely transparent with our staff on what those numbers are. And we encourage them to look at the numbers in our system. We use OMS Vision. So they they know exactly where to go to hit the button, see where we're at on collections and productions each month. We actually presented to them early on, you know, it looks like that, you know, our practice collects, say, $150,000 this month, for example. And they're like, oh, well, that's so much, so much money. But we actually presented them like, what is the overhead for our practice? We actually put it, we did a presentation to them and said, here's the overhead. Here's what, you know, once you take that 150, here's a chunk of your salary. Here's how much utilities cost, how much the rent costs for the building. And so they're, they get a good understanding of like what it is to run a practice and that, you know, I'm not making $150,000 as the oral surgeon, you know, and they're, you know, making, you know, a month. So they have a very good idea of like what it costs to run the practice. Actually, they know how much we're collecting. They know kind of what our production is. And they actually look at that. I think, in the, you know, around the middle of the month, they probably start buying that and saying, mm-hmm. okay, we need to, if we do a little bit more, we may get a bonus this month. And so I'm fully down with sharing all, you know, the profits with everybody. I, I try not to be super money hungry and I don't need it all for myself. And I've got a great staff and it's, a, it is a team. And I think that we should be sharing what we do with them. So that's a great way to do it. And I love the transparency that they know where the practice is at every month. And it actually incentivizes them to work harder and smarter. Nice. And Grant, the magic that I found with bonus systems is a, it can't be an entitlement. B, it has to unite a team and C, it has to be very, both easy to understand and something they can control. And mm-hmm. so that's why we take production and collections and average them because it seems like the back is more over production and the front's over collections. So let's bring that together. Not an entitlement. So how that works with my clients is I do what's called a stair-step bonus and you've got tiers and each tier has a higher number attached to it, but also more money involved when a team hits tier four you know you could see a 10 to 15 percent bonus for the month which is some pretty good money for a team member but at the same time the doctor is still keeping about 82 percent of the incremental dollars that are flowing into the practice through hitting those higher and higher levels once they kind of hit what i call their turn on the lights number which is everybody gets paid including you but it just gets the team to become owners in their own right and know that they've got a stake in the practice of success. And so they start to ask better questions yep. because they know in the end, you know, if you've got the right people and if the bonus system is set up appropriately, then they really start to dig in and look at opportunities. Yeah, that is awesome. One question is, because I've worked in a couple of different practice settings and from my experience, it seems like there's certain staff members that are totally fine with a monthly bonus, I guess you could say, or, or, or percent. 
And then there's others that it's hard for them to, you know, maintain focus. And they, some of them kind of need a weekly or a, a daily thing. If you hit a certain production or whatever, see a certain number of patients, I don't know. How do you guys deal with all of that? I mean, is, is it doing once a month working for everybody in the practice? I think it works Absolutely. great for my practice. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's an issue at all. I think practices I've been in previously, I think the fault with those is the bonus was just a random number that came maybe quarterly or yearly, and it wasn't even reliable for, you know, maybe if the practice was doing well, I think the doctors was like at the end of the summer, they'd be like, oh, hey, we had a great, you know, June, July, August, let's give the staff a bonus. And maybe that would, that would come some years, maybe it wouldn't. I think the key for me is just a reliable, whenever it is that it's reliable, right? So like at the end of the month, they know that there's going to be opportunity for a bonus you know the fault that i've seen is it's just unreliable or it's a different number it's some random number i think those are all issues and you know the staff are like well why did we get 100 this month and like last year it was 200 or whatever so i think reliability and that's just defining it i mean it's again like a surgical principle right like it's defined this is what yeah. you're going to get if you make this number that's huge. And I, I don't know, it's kind of funny. Like, I'm just thinking of this now, like everything we've done has just, it's like a surgical thought. Like, you know, when you take out a wisdom tooth, you kind of have in your mind what you're going to do step by step. This is mm -hmm. the same way, you know, if you're going to give a bonus, it comes once a month and it comes if you meet these numbers and there's tiers to them. You know, if this tier is this much money, that tier is that much money. It's kind of in a tier system. So it's well-defined. So hopefully that answers that question. Yeah. Another question is, you know, do you have an office manager and how, how are you training them to kind of keep this going? Yeah. Interestingly, in my practice, we looked at it and the way it best work is I had a really strong leadership personality in my back office, who was my nurse, and then a strong kind of front office personality, somebody who had a lot of experience up there. So we actually have a front office and a back office leader and okay. they kind of report to me if there's issues in any of the areas. So it's almost like I have two, one front and one back. That's just kind of how it worked out in my practice the best. Nice. I think maybe one day down the road, I would look at like an overall leader, leadership person, but it works out well for me that way now. Okay. Yeah, I know some, a lot of practices have a manager, some don't. And kind of the, I think the ones who don't have a manager struggle to really keep a pulse on what's happening up front, you know, because it's just impossible when you're back doing surgeries all day to know what's being said and how patient problems are being handled. But then others who have a manager but don't train the manager correctly, then there's a lot of friction there, you know, because they envision one thing and the manager's doing something else. And so it's if you can dial in who's ever in charge up front, I think is one big piece of the puzzle. What have you guys found with that experience? Yeah, I think that's key. I mean, I've worked with really good managers up front, and that's a tough spot because you know, they, they need to have a pulse on everything up front. And the key for me is I didn't, you know, you don't want to be bothered with little things all day. I think Bob calls them ankle biters. You know, you don't want your front office person coming back and saying, you know, these two girls are fighting about whatever, you know, like you want that taken care of, or 
you don't want to like, for me, I don't want to hear, you know, there's a leak in the roof, you know, in the middle of the day or something like, just take care of it. Right. Like, or the gutters being cleaned or some weird thing. Like yeah. as, as a oral surgeon, you don't want to be hearing about the, the Terminex guy, you know, having to kill cockroaches in the bathroom or whatever. So <laughs> yeah, that person needs to be a real initiative kind of take charge kind of person. And it's a challenging role, but like if you find the right person there and you can delegate and, you know, give them power to take care of things, man, it makes your life so much better. It really does. Yeah. And another question is how often do you meet with your staff to have these kind of review meetings where you go over the metrics and talk about how they're doing? Yeah. The one-on-one -on -one meetings, I know Bob wanted me, he probably want me to do this quarterly, I think was the, I'm doing it right now because just because it's been kind of establishing the practice twice a year is where I'm at right now. I think he'd like to go a little sooner, but that's kind of where it fell this year. We got busy and I I'm end up doing them now. I think October, I think we did them back in March. So right now I'm at a twice a year, but we do. The other thing he kind of helped institute, I wasn't a big believer in like meeting, like in the mornings, every morning, you know, as like a morning huddle. That just sound, sounded kind of cheesy to me, but like I've done that reliably now. So we meet every morning as a practice or sometimes if we're wrapped up early, we'll do it late in the evening and look at the next day's schedule. We do it for about 10 minutes. It's just like, you know, boom, boom, boom. Here's a potential problem spot in the schedule. You can kind of see it in advance. Yeah. And, you know, that's huge for me because then you're not just working, working, and all of a sudden, boom, it's like, you know, you have like two big implant consults next to each other and it just hits you out of nowhere. Like we see that in advance and say, potentially this is a problem spot in our schedule or, you know, these are two problem patients next to each other. So I can at least get my mindset that this might, you know, at 10 o'clock tomorrow, I may have to kind of hustle a little bit to get through this part of my day. You know, the girls are on the same page. They know this could be a tough spot in the schedule. So meeting in the mornings has been huge. Every once in a while, we can kind of touch on difficult things in the practice in that meeting. We do meet as a team also. It sounds like a lot of meetings. We meet as a team probably every six weeks right now and just sit down for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. Bob, the other thing Bob did for me in my personality, he actually gave me a personality test, which was interesting. It helped me kind of develop my leadership technique. Again, something that I would have thought was kind of cheesy at first, but it really did work to look at how my personality is. And one of the things that I do is that if a bunch of things kind of happen that were stressful in my day, I'd kind of just I'd go right to the source of the problem. Like there's a front office issue immediately run up there and be like, let's fix this, fix this, fix this. I'd go in the back, fix this. That's kind of, you know, I think a lot of surgeons are like that. You see a problem, you go after it, you fix it. Maybe a lot of men are like that. He actually put a whiteboard on the wall in my office. He said, if you have a major issue in the middle of the day, just write the problem on that board and come back to it later. And I found like, it's crazy. Like I'll write, you know, I'll say, instead of blowing up, I'll just say, put that on the board. And three hours later, I'll go back and look at it and I'll be like, you know what? That's not that big deal. We can fix it this way. So <laughs> it's kind of a funny little trick that he did for me to help kind of make things better for everybody in the office. And I think the staff appreciate it as well. I think is the term sprinkler management. Is that mm -hmm. what we're using for Yes. I think we do that a lot where we just kind of like try to run after problems and sprinkle and, you know, maybe get upset here and get upset there and run all over the place and do that's not a good way to do things. And I've kind of learned that. 
and your team starts chasing their tail because they really want to please the doctor. And then they aren't sure where they are. You know, it's just pretty dysfunctional when that takes place. Mm-hmm. So we use more of a team approach to solve, you know, major and minor issues in the office. I kind of write it down. We usually save it for that team meeting. And it's funny when I we get to the team meeting at the time, they were big issues and we sit down there reading the stuff off the board. I'm like, you know, that's not that big of a deal. We can fix that pretty easily. So, yeah. yeah. And that's part of this creating a culture of participation. You know, how do you bring your team in to solve both acute and chronic problems? Mm-hmm. Because they're going to own the solution. I mean, the ultimate goal of an oral surgery practice is to have the surgeon do only what the surgeon has to do by license or by talent and everything else around him or her is delegated. Everything else around him or her is done by team members who know why and what and how. And they also understand in the end, if they do it well, this is what the results are going to look like and how we measure it. Nice. I really like the idea of, you know, the whiteboard and kind of jotting problems down and dealing with it at a meeting, maybe at the end of the day or the early morning next day. I think I've experienced this as well, where something happens in the back, like they say, oh, you know, they see someone and oh, Dr. Stuckey, we're doing a local and this guy was scheduled for sedation. But yeah, it turns out he ate, you know, chocolate waffles an hour ago. Mm-hmm. And I have to resist the temptation, you know, to run up front and start lecturing everybody about, you know, how many freaking times have I told you guys you know, whatever, eight hours, no, blah, blah. And, and so for me, I found it's a similar thing. I have to like make a note of that. And then at the end of the day, we kind of all sit down and review it. One of the reasons is just because if I run up there and talk to so-and-so who I think was the offender and the rest of the staff aren't there, it's like, now I have to repeat that, you know, 10 times. And sometimes I don't even get the right person. And so if we mm-hmm. get everybody in a group and we talk, it's just one moment as opposed to like 10 times me having to say the same thing over and over. Yeah. I don't and, know. and Grant, that's an example. If you really peel it back of a system breakdown. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And part of allowing a team to start to grab ownership of the practice is to take a system mindset to what you do. All right. Really successful practices kind of follow this really simple model. And I, it's a tree. All right. The trunk of a practice are their systems. The roots is how you communicate. Okay. Okay. The roots are either going to feed the systems or not feed the systems. But if those are in alignment, both how you communicate and how you have your systems developed, and if the tree's planted in good soil of leadership and teamwork, then you got a beautiful tree on top with lots of leaves, lots of fruit, lots of shade, and people love to come to it. I know that sounds really simplistic, but that's kind of how it all fits together. And if you can zero in on systems and system breakdowns, and one easy way I, I coach my clients when you encounter this is to step back as a team and ask yourself, like in this example that you gave, you know, that they weren't NPO. So what's the goal and what are we doing today that reinforces that goal, which is called what's working, but then we flip the discussion. Okay. What's not working and where are the breakdowns and then therefore what, 
You know, what do we need to change systemically to be able to help those mistakes from happening? Yes. And if you, I know it takes more time to do, it's so much easier to go up front and issue an edict, you know? Mm-hmm. The problem is the edict then has everybody running around with off with your head type mentality. And as you say, you know, you got to tell everybody else about it, Yeah, but it just creates an environment of fear instead of an environment of trust and teamwork. If you allow it to be strategically talked about and solved. Got it. Okay. It's critical. I, I totally yeah. agree that communication and the way we communicate and the frequency we communicate is just so huge with making a practice succeed. And it's so yeah. un- underrated, undertaught. You know, so many of us are just basically bad communicators. And we, <laughs> it, yeah. So everything you can do to improve communication in the office, I think, is helpful. I think you guys have touched on a lot. And I'm sure there's much more we could be discussing. If some of our listeners, you know, kind of have questions or, you know, are starting up a practice or feel like, you know, they just don't know how to communicate. Are you guys okay with people reaching out to you or how would you like to address some of these things? Yeah, I'm fine. If anybody wants to talk to me about, especially how I use the consultant or the worth of, you know, a consultant. For me, my practice is the best thing I ever did. I saved so much time and stress. And I did it in a time where like I bought the practice literally, I think it was March 6th was our closing date. And I think we all hit the COVID thing. I don't know if it was March 15th or 17th. It was right in that area. So I had one full week of practice. When I bought the practice, there was no thought of COVID whatsoever. The day I bought it, I signed the paperwork. I walked out of the lawyer's office. I was like, you know, so happy. And a week later, the whole world like came crashing down. So, you know, and it's, there's an expense involved, right? With, with hiring a consultant, but I mean, I can't tell you how much, I mean, you can't put a price on the, the stress that I've saved, the time that I've saved, and even the money that I'll eventually, you know, end up making in the future, which isn't the most important thing, but you know, my office is so much better off from every perspective and it's so worth it. And I hired one in the middle of a pandemic where the money was tight and I kept them on board. And so, yeah, if anybody would, you know, I'd be the biggest proponent, you know, a new person coming out of residency, you know, make it work. Like it seems like it's expensive, but don't bother yourself with so many little things and you're going to learn lessons the hard way and you're going to lose staff and you're going to lose patience over time. It's, like get your practice right, right off the bat. It's the best thing that I did. So yeah, if anybody needs to get a hold of me, I'm the only oral surgeon in LaGrange, Georgia. So I'm easy to find if, All right. uh, if somebody needs to get a hold of me. So awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And Grant, if, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, probably the easiest way is, is send me a text. Okay. All right. And my number is 208-520-6900 or, or they can email me at bob at spielconsulting.com that's sp isn't peter iel consulting.com okay terrific yeah very cool well i'd also invite him to grab a copy of my book too on amazon it's 20 bucks and it's going to be one of the best investments they'll ever make in themselves oh that's so great i'm gonna read that book myself I think we've touched on a lot of important points and really appreciate you guys being willing to share your story and kind of 
uh, you know, maybe potentially failed questions from listeners because there's a lot of need, I think, for people, you know, needing help with running their practice and knowing how to address things and when to offer rewards and how to discuss metrics and what metrics, you know, it can it just goes on and on. So it's so helpful to have experienced people to kind of guide you. Mm-hmm. And Grant, just one last thing. I mean, as far as my consulting goes, I love working with practice owners that have been in the game for five to 10 years, uh, okay. have succeeded in spite of themselves and now they feel stuck, you know, yep. and they're not sure where to go and what to do. They just know that, that they're in a corner now. Yeah. And are are feeling burnout. They're feeling tired. They're just like, I'm done with this. Something has to change. Mm-hmm. Those are often the very best clients to find because we will accept the path that changed when we see that the pain of staying the same is actually greater than the pain of doing something different. That's a good point. Okay. Yeah. Yep. A lot of us pain is an amazing teacher. Oh yeah. And a lot of us get stuck in what I call unfortunate momentum where you're just kind of rolling down, you know, this train track and you don't know how to stop, but it's going, but you got to keep it going and you don't know how to turn or, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's where a set of outside eyes can really be helpful. Yes. And I don't think we even touched on a lot of the, I mean, there's so many other little things that Bob's helped with you know, practice financial stuff, the business aspects. I mean, because he has access to so many other practices, he knows, you know, normal numbers and percentages for things or, you know, the rare time he hasn't known the answer, he's directed me to somebody who has. I've been in contact with other oral surgeons that he knows and practice managers. And so, yeah, billing questions that I have no idea how to answer, coding questions, you know, all all sorts of other things that we've been helped with. So, it's really a great resource to hire a consultant. I, I'm, you know, I'm the biggest proponent. It just makes your life a lot better. Bottom line. Awesome. So, so cool. Well, Bob, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet Grant. Thank you. Um, yeah. I really appreciate you taking time and we'll keep you posted, but let's stay in touch. Yeah. Okay. I'd like great. to thank, and thank you so much for this podcast as a solo practicing oral surgeon who probably the next oral surgeon is like 45 minutes away. I don't have a lot of contact with oral surgery anymore, you know, other oral surgeons. So to listen to other people and their struggles and their, their successes, it, it really, it's awesome for me. It really is. What you're doing is great. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad you're finding it beneficial. It's good to hear. Yeah. Cool. It's amazing. It really is. I mean, yeah, kind of out on an Island and it's just good to hear there's other people doing the same thing and having the same difficulties and <laughs> extracting number five with an ash force up or whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> so <laughs> I actually don't use an ash on the uppers. I don't, I don't know how you do that, but I was hoping to get that question. I was going to argue with you about that, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> no. it's so awkward. I, I don't know how you put your hand up or down. I don't know how you do that, but anyway, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yes. That'll be the next podcast right there. We can just discuss- Okay. <laughs> We'll go over that for an hour and or something. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> okay. Right. Sounds good. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Great. Good to be with you. Thank you. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. 
If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.